Welcome to the Dipshit Files, episode 25. Hello, Mrs. Scriptkeeper. Well, hello, Mr. Scriptkeeper. I'm looking forward to this one, even though it's true crime again, and yeah. it's always dark and terrible, and it makes me feel bad. <laughs> but we're going to try and have uh, a learnable time. Yeah. A good learnable time. I don't know if that's even the English language that I'm using anymore. Well, there's, you know, you're making up your own well, words. That's fine. A. That's because this guy drives me nuts. This guy's <laughs> completely bad shit asshole. He's a weirdo. He's smart, but he's Creepy. Dumb. He's, he's creepy. fucking creepy. He's got some weird ideas about I the know. world, and we're going to dig into it. It's another dipshit file. His name is Har- Harvey Birdman. Uh, no, Law. It's, it's... No, it's not? Creepy. It's Creepy Weasel. Harvey? Harvey, Harvey Gladman. Harvey Gladman. Attorney at Law. He's not an attorney. <laughs> Actually, never really had a job because his creepy-ass mom <laughs> took care of him. Anyway. You're going to hear all this shit. <laughs> it's all there in this week's dipshit file. <laughs> Today's case is serial killer Harvey Glattman, who was dubbed the Glamour Girl Slayer. He's also known as the Lonely Hearts Killer, and way back when, in his early criminal career, he was known as the Phantom Bandit. Dumb. Let's just dig in, because this is a long one. Hand me my shovel. So Harvey Glattman was born Harvey Murray Glattman on December 10th, 1927, into an immigrant Jewish family in the Bronx. His parents were Albert and Ophelia Gold Glattman. And they met in 1925. Albert worked as a milliner. Uh, A milliner is someone who makes or sells women's hats. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either. And he worked at the Instructo Millinery Supply Company. This is where he met Ophelia. Over time, Albert grew tired of making hats and, you know, working for someone else. So he eventually opened up his own business, a stationery shop in the Bronx. Harvey was an only child and starting from a very young age... Albert and Ophelia couldn't help but notice that Harvey wasn't like other children. What are you playing with there, Harvey, my son? I'm deboning a cat. Oh, that's good and healthy there. My son's a good boy. That's right, wife. He's a, he's a good boy. Look, mommy, a cat's fine. It gets mommy's good boy. Well, maybe this means he'll be a veterinarian. Oh, oh God, he's oh. peeing on the cat's dead oh. body. That's my good boy. Oh, good boy. He didn't seem to like to do the same things that other children his age were doing. Yeah, most kids collect baseball cards, not cat spines. He wasn't really interested in socializing or hanging out with them, and he didn't have any friends. He was very thin and basically just a loner. He also suffered from terrible mood swings, which would turn violent. Harvey's father, Albert, uh, was remembered as a strict disciplinarian. After looking into this, it seems he was just a stereotypical father from that era. He would punish Harvey pretty harshly for these outbursts, which, as you can guess, did not do anything to help Harvey or anyone. It just made things worse. It usually does. Harvey stated that his father was, quote, quite strict, and he said Ophelia was, quote, rather indulgent of a mother, and holy crap, no truer words have ever been spoken, as you will soon learn. No, no. Yeah. Well, cheers to good moms. Moms with temperance. As Harvey moves into school age, his problem behavior didn't improve. That's why it's a dipshit. As you can guess, it just increased. He would laugh at very inappropriate times, or at random, over seemingly nothing, and he had an extremely short attention span. What? 
He just could not focus, and as such, this really made his academic work suffer. Disturbingly, Harvey started setting buildings on fire Shocking. and torturing animals. Cat spots. Today, we see this type of behavior as a red flag, but at this time, the term serial killer hadn't been coined, and our understanding of these signs hadn't been widely embraced in the psych world. Harvey was arrested for setting buildings on fire, but I couldn't find any information on how this was handled by the authorities. I did find that Albert and Ophelia placed Harvey under a parental mandated house arrest. At this time, the neighbors just thought of Harvey as a quiet, introverted, shy child, but that would change. At around 12 years old, Harvey's parents discover that Harvey has a little kink. Uh oh. They find out that Harvey is really into autoerotic asphyxiation. Uh oh. That's a dangerous one. Yeah. He would tie a rope around his neck and then get in the bathtub and then run the ropes free end around the crossbar in the drain, and then he'd pull it tight. He'd also use rafters up in the attic to hang himself. I feel like that stretches outside of kink. What are you into? I like to go to the shark tank at the aquarium and just splay my nuts out for the shark to attack, bro. Oh, my. I have my nuts dangling in the calm waters right before they get bitten off by a shark Uh is my kink, so, you know, don't shame me. I never would. Apparently, his fascination and gravitation towards autoerotic asphyxiation went back quite a ways. As early as four years old, Harvey Uh. would take a piece of twine, Mm -hmm. tie it around his penis, Uh. and stick the link in a drawer and then he would lean back until the rope was taut and tight yikes Uh, what are you doing in here my son i'm just seeing if i can pull my wiener off oh dear uh wife uh, what is it small little issue with our son here what's going on oh my god what are you doing with your dingus i'm pulling my wiener off mommy that's my good boy yeah so harvey's parents were uh, quite alarmed when they discovered this so they took harvey to a psychiatrist who then tells them that there's really nothing to worry about Uh this is all just a phase nailed it they also told harvey's parents that he would quote grow out of it and it was just growing pains i guess most people would have that seems awfully strange that's something that you shouldn't have grown into right right so there are conflicting reports on how harvey's parents discovered their son's dangerous and alarming behavior there are some reports that say Ophelia noticed some rope burns on Harvey's neck, and she asked him about it, and he told her, hey, Harvey, hey, what's with all the ropes? Are you uh, okay? I really like ropes, Mom. They're fun. Are you not hanging the neighbor dogs or anything? No, I choke myself when I'm jerking off, and it feels great. Oh, okay, well, that's my good boy. Other reports say that Albert and Ophelia actually walked in on Harvey as he was doing this. Tough to get more awkward than that. But at this point, it really doesn't matter how they found out. He'll go on to do horrific things, so let's just stay focused. Find me where I'm going. Albert and Ophelia take Harvey to a doctor who says it's not that big of a deal. Probably not for most folks. Apparently, the psychiatrist had given Harvey some unspecified pills to fix him. Thanks. This psychiatrist also told Albert and Ophelia to keep Harvey busy. Years later, Harvey would say that he was caught masturbating several times after this, and every time he was severely punished for it. That's not going to help. Yeah, like throwing gas on the fire right there. Yeah, so, I think so. Oops. Whoopsie. Uh, so now, eventually, Albert and Ophelia thought Harvey just needed a change of environment, so they decided to pack up and they moved to Denver, Colorado in 1937. Just choke yourself at a higher elevation. Here, Albert drove a taxi and relied on tips and Ophelia got a job at the Hollywood hat shop. Now, it's at this time that Harvey says he begins to feel bitter towards his father. It seems Harvey didn't want to move to Colorado and so he begins losing respect for his mother as well. He thought she was, quote, too soft 
Now, as Harvey grew and entered high school, specifically East Denver High School, his emotional outbursts and sexual deviations just became more intense. There's conflicting information as to what his high school life was actually like. In fact, there are a few contradictions in this case, and some details vary. So I'm going to share with you just what I found and the different variations of facts here and there. So I found, as far as Harvey's high school experience goes, a few sources that I read said that he was a near straight-A student. Really? He played the clarinet in the school band, was part of the Boy Scouts, and was even part of a small band with other students. Hmm. The Harvey and the Cunt Weasel experience, featuring Spanky Johansson on trumpet. I don't know. What? Sorry. Um. However, other reports stated that Harvey was more often than not subject to bullying, particularly for his looks. Dumb. He had a small, wiry frame, he wore thick, horn-rimmed glasses, and he had really big ears that stuck out. Mm. He also had buck teeth, and kids are cruel, so when you add all of this up, it equals a miserable high school experience. Yeah, I bet. Apparently, his nickname in school was Weasel, Mm. so I don't think he really had any friends, and of course, all of this would be a blow to his already low self-esteem and self-worth. Yeah. In my research, it was totally clear as to which school experience he had. Bad. Uh, Maybe a little bit of both, I think. I mean, you can still do well academically and be a part of all these extracurricular activities and still be bullied. Yeah. However, in further research, it was stated that Harvey had trouble focusing in primary school, so much so that it affected his grades. So, I don't know. When looking forward into what he would become, I'm siding with high school being absolutely miserable for Harvey. Mm-hmm. Just my opinion. Well, humans are the worst they'll ever be, I think, in high school. I was an agent of stupid chaos in high school. One thing we do know for sure is Harvey was deathly afraid of females. Like, panicked, sweating, want to run away type fear. We've all been there. You ladies are pretty. He was so afraid that when Harvey saw a woman coming towards him on the sidewalk, he would actually walk across the street in order to avoid her. Hmm. It is stated that when he did work up the courage to talk to a woman, he was just a mess. And this pissed him off. He stuttered. He would break into a cold sweat. He stammered and just came off as super creepy. So poor Harvey was not having much luck in the ladies department. Maybe they could smell the psycho on him. Ophelia, his mother, described her son as, quote, girl shy. Like, that's a little more than girl shy, but okay. So at this point, it's obvious to Harvey that he's not going to get a woman the conventional way. Mm. He's a mess. He just can't talk to them, and they find him creepy and weird. So Harvey starts diving into voyeurism. Another red flag. Yeah, very much. He's still in high school, remember? He's still a teenager. So just keep that in mind. Well, he's showing that his innate personality is cunty. He started watching neighborhood girls and women undress through their windows, and sometimes he would just watch them as they went about their business. I don't think he was bullied enough. He was just a creepy teen staring at women as they unloaded groceries and walked the dog Mm -hmm. and all that weird shit. That's real gross. So as we all know, deviant behavior doesn't typically plateau. It escalates. So his voyeurism blossomed into breaking and entering. He's just checking all the how to be a cunt boxes, isn't he? So he'd break into houses. He'd steal whatever caught his eye. At one point, he broke into a house and he actually stole a 38 caliber revolver. Hmm. He would keep this gun with him from this point forward. Now, this was considered petty crime at the time, so they didn't garner a whole lot of attention from the authorities. Of course, as you can imagine, this just increases Harvey's confidence because he's getting away with these crimes. Big time. 
Nobody's doing anything about it. So around late autumn of 1944, Harvey's behavior becomes more brazen, as does his behavior towards women. Prior to getting away with petty crime and owning a stolen gun, Harvey was intimidated and scared of females. Now, the psycho pendulum swings to the other way, and Harvey becomes outright rude and somewhat aggressive. God has a weird sense of humor, doesn't he? In later interviews, it's shared that if he stepped on a woman's foot, he wouldn't apologize. Another check mark on the I'm a cunt boxes? If he bumped into her or something, he wouldn't even acknowledge this as an accident. He would just give her a dirty look and continue walking. Get the oh, fuck out of my way, you bitches! Oh, what the Ooh. fuck is your problem? People hurt my feelings! Evidently, Har- Harvey had turned into a full-on asshole. Sounds about right. Also around this time, he's becoming more aggressive in the way he stalks the women around him. Oh, super. He started following women home and openly stalking them on the street. What is wrong with the half-shaved cave apes of this planet? Fuck. Remember, this kid is still in high school at this point. Right. If they were alone, he'd break into their homes and threaten them with his gun. He would tie them up, gag them, and force them to lie down on the bed with him and just they just lie there. In, in the beginning, he didn't actually assault them. But after some time of this, he would escalate once again with inappropriate touching and forcing them to watch him masturbate while they were tied up. Some sources state that Harvey also took pictures of the women at this time. He's a good boy. Harvey said he just wanted to know what it was like laying down next to a woman. Well, you see, Harvey, women don't like being treated like objects that you possess. Kind of makes their injustice meter go through the roof. They don't like it. He wanted to know what it was like to be with a woman, just spend time with her. This is why sex robots are important, I think. <laughs> I think, it, I, I'm not even fucking around. I think somebody that's like, I can't, I'll never be married. It's like sex robots, sex dolls, they have upgraded over the years. Don't be embarrassed. Go get one. You're fine. As far as the police are concerned, they're now paying attention. These petty crimes are escalating, so of course, police are beginning to pay attention to this creepo breaking into women's apartments, tying them up at gunpoint, and touching them. So the police were notified of an adolescent perpetrator that was described by one of his victims as a skinny, jug-eared teenager with a, quote, chipmunk face. Okay. Now, remember, again, Harvey is in high school. Time of his life. And he commits these crimes at night, lying to his parents about what he's doing. But his dad always kept his eye on the neighborhood pet population just to see. Did a little weekly inventory, just make sure hmm, seven cats. He would tell Ophelia that he just had extracurricular activities after school, so he'd be home late, and his mother believed him. Hey, what have you been up to, my boy? I've just been doing normal things like collecting ropes. Oh, yeah, the ropes. Creeping the fuck out of people as I stalk them. Oh, you're stalking people, okay? You know, normal teenager shit. It's my good boy. My good, good boy. In May of 1945, Harvey is 17 years old and he finally gets caught. I read conflicting reports as to which attack actually got him caught, so I'm going to share what I found. A couple of sources stated that he got caught after he threatened Eula Jo Hand with a gun tied her to a telephone pole and sexually assaulted her. Yikes. She went to the police and reported him and was able to identify Harvey because she'd gone to school with him. Smart. Yes, she was a fellow classmate. Now, other reports state that this attack on Eula was actually one of Harvey's first assaults, that she was actually one of his first victims, and this was not the attack that got him caught. Okay. Those sources stated that the incident that landed him behind bars was when he was caught trying to break into the apartment of a woman named Alma Ham. 
When police arrived and searched him, they found a rope and a gun in his pocket. Hmm. Either way, in May of 1945, he's finally caught. And when he's interrogated, Harvey admits to the break-ins, but omits any type of sexual assault. He must not think women are people. He was subsequently bailed out by his mother, Ophelia. He's a good boy. And he missed his high school graduation because of this. Now, he already knew what he wanted to be when he grew up, a predatorial pervert. Now, get this. Receiving. A month later, in June, he's out on bail, awaiting trial for breaking and entering and burglary. Normal Harvey shit. And then he attacks another woman. While he's waiting for his other trial? So he's waiting trial for burglary charges. I'm not sure what happened with the assault claim, but they got him for stealing. He abducted Noreen Laurel in Boulder. He threatened her with a gun, walked her back to his car, and drove to a secluded spot where he tied her hands behind her back, put a gag in her mouth, and touched her inappropriately. I don't get how you get extra chances. I, if you demonstrate this this ability to do this in society, it's like, you got to go away for like you, 10 years starting now. Yeah. And then we'll give you 10 years from now, maybe. Right. If we put you through, you know, fuck. I'm not sure this kind of person is rehabilitatable. So just to be clear, so far, Harvey has not actually forced sex on any of his victims. Well. He's just touching them while masturbating. And kidnapping them and restraining them. Right, and, right. But in this. the at, shit out of them. At this point, it's not considered sexual assault. I mean, it's crazy. This is is the 50s. Right, fuck. So when he was finished with her, he released Noreen and even gave her cab fare. She, of course, took that and went straight to the police. She identified Harvey through his mugshot from the month prior. A brand new mugshot. (laughs) Still wearing the same shirt. Right, right. When Noreen identifies Harvey to the police, Ophelia stands by her son and tries to explain away his behavior by saying, quote, He's my good boy. Being so extremely girl shy, he accosted girls in the evening. He would maybe grab their purses just for an approach and then throw it back at them. But he never harmed anyone in a bodily way. He's still a good boy. Personally, I would argue that being touched against your will, restrained, kidnapped, and threatened at gunpoint is definitely bodily harm. Yes. But whatever, Ophelia. He's a good boy. The, the reference made to taking a purse and throwing it back was in a police report from about 18 months prior to his escalating behavior. So around 15 years old, Harvey started approaching women and taking their purses and then chucking them back at them and then running off. What the fuck? Weird. Fucking creepo. So after trial, Harvey was ultimately sent to Colorado State Prison with a one to five year sentence. Now, this sentence refers only to the initial burglary charges, as far as I could find. I found nothing that shows he was punished for the attack on Noreen or any of the other women. However, due to good behavior, Harvey was released eight months later. Dumb. He was released on parole July of 1946. So after his release, his mother wanted to fix her son. So she took him to another psychiatrist who suggests that Harvey was scared of the opposite sex and he should take dance lessons. Oh, my. Dance lessons. All, AKA, Be- AKA that doctor has no fucking idea what they're talking about at the time. Zero. Because he was afraid. No, not the victim. Oh my God. So it's unclear if Harvey ever took these prescribed dance lessons, but at this time. Did Harvey bust a breath? Ophelia and Harvey moved back to New York, specifically Yonkers, because Harvey had gotten some unwanted attention over in Colorado. Pets are missing. I think the people in the uh, neighborhood were pissed that Harvey was still around. He's a creep. I found that Albert yeah. stayed behind in Colorado and continued working. Well, I'll see a concert. So it's just mom and Harvey in New York for another change of scenery. 
So that's all Harvey needs, right? A change mm-hmm. of scenery. Yeah, that, he'll, he'll be fine. Yeah, he'll be fine. It's, it'll to, be fine. These Rocky Mountain rivers didn't rinse out the crazy of our sun. Maybe we can go to Yonkers. So they get to Yonkers, and within 30 days, Harvey is out on the streets trolling for more women. Mm. On August 17th, 1946, brandishing a toy pistol, he accosts a young couple who are walking down the street enjoying their evening. This couple was Thomas Starrow and Doris Thorne, and Harvey leapt out of the bushes with his toy gun and forced Thomas to kneel down. Harvey tied Thomas's hands and feet, and he robbed him of $30. He then turned his attention to Doris. Harvey led her several hundred feet away to a tree, tied her wrist behind her, and then began fumbling at her blouse, no doubt to assault her. But fortunately, Thomas managed to wiggle out of his bonds, and before Harvey could actually assault Doris... Thomas lunged at Harvey and pulled him to the ground. Go, Doris. Go, Thomas. <laughs> they struggled for a second, but Harvey managed to whip out a pocket knife, and he slashed at Thomas's shoulders, which, of course, caused him to leap backward, and then Harvey took off, running into the night. Oof. Harvey fled to a train station, and he took a train to Albany. So now he's in Albany for about three days before he's up to his old tricks, and on August 22nd, he's out on the streets looking for more victims. He accosted a young nurse named Florence Hayden while she was on her way home from a long day at work. He stuck the toy pistol in her back, robbed her of $28, and then attempted to tie her hands behind her back. Florence was smart. She noticed that he was leading her to a semi-secluded little alleyway, and then he was fumbling around with a rope to tie her up. She thought, wait a minute. So he's tying me up with both of his hands, which means he doesn't have the gun in his hand anymore. Smart. So she turns around, pushes him, screams for help, and Harvey takes off running. The very next night, again brandishing his little toy because it makes him feel powerful, he robbed a pair of middle-aged women, Evelyn Burge and Beverly Goldstein. And they, of course, immediately went to the police, and Harvey was connected to the same individual who had attacked Thomas, Doris, and Florence. It was at this time that all police throughout the tri-state area within a certain radius were notified to be on the lookout for the, quote, Phantom Bandit, mm, as he was dumb, referred to. Stupid, dumb name. Right. So just two days later, on August 25th, Harvey is apprehended by the police. They actually witnessed him stalking another woman. And when they searched him, they, of course, found the rope, the toy pistol, and the pocket knife. Harvey's mother asked everyone to excuse little Harvey's behavior. She would plead to anyone who would listen that her son, quote, molested two young women along the usual pattern, but never hurt anyone. Fucking what? I, I don't have any idea what's wrong with that's this zero percent empathy, I think, is what that's yeah. she's telling on herself. Right. So she described the attack on Thomas and Doris as simply one night he tried to molest a girl and her boyfriend put up a fight. That's how she describes these assaults. Wow. The woman is psycho. Yeah. So two months later, when he's 19 years old, Harvey is sentenced to five to 10 years. Since he was not 21 years old, he was first sent to the Elmira Correction Facility. And then when he was 21, he was transferred to Sing Sing Prison. While he was locked up, psychiatrists, of course, evaluate him. His IQ is tested, and he is found to be between 126 and 130. I think 130 is in the top 2 or 3%. Psychologists and psychiatrists who examine Harvey diagnosed him with, quote, psychopathic personality schizophrenic type with, quote, sexually perverted impulses. 
as the basis of his criminality. Terribly dangerous to society. <laughs> right. Yeah. Not a good combo. Now, despite this assessment in 1948, Harvey's paroled. <sighs> he had served less than three years. What? All right. So I don't know who the I don't know who the 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 biggest dipshit is here. Is it is it Ophelia? Yeah. Is it Harvey or yeah. is it our judicial system? Because yeah. this is fucking ridiculous. They're all together a big pile of right, shit. Right. I I don't know. So, however, he almost went right back to jail because upon his arrest in Yonkers, authorities tried to charge him on that attack against Thomas and Doris. But his, you remember the boyfriend and mm-hmm, girlfriend, mm-hmm. his lawyer successfully argued using the Sixth Amendment that Yonkers authorities had had plenty of time to charge Harvey while he was sitting in prison, but they didn't. So Harvey was then released into parental custody. No. And, That's a powerful mom. She's just like, you give me my boy back. I'll take care of him. I'll get him. I'll, I'll just look out for him. Don't worry about it. Oh my God. She scares me. Yeah. Well, he actually went to Denver to live with Ophelia. Apparently, she'd moved back to Colorado after Harvey was incarcerated. The New York Parole Board granted his request to go to Colorado as long as he met conditions, two of them, that he regularly stay in contact with his Colorado parole officer, and he had to get psychiatric care on an outpatient basis. Mm. So Harvey went back to Denver, and he spent the next three and a half years unemployed with Ophelia waiting on him hand and foot and excusing away his unemployment. In October of 1952, Albert, his dad, died of complications from diabetes. A disappointment. And Ophelia, right. Wife, I'm dying. Now, don't say that. There's something I've been meaning to tell you all these years. Did you cheat on me? No, it's worse than that. What's worse than that? It's about our son. Harvey, a good boy? It's just it, Ophelia. I don't think he's a good boy. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't think he's a good boy at all. I'm just going to put this pillow right here on your face. He's my good boy. And Ophelia decided to start a business to make ends meet. She actually opened up her own millinery shop, and beginning in October of 1954, Harvey holds a whole array of random odd jobs. He was a butcher, he was a truck driver, he was a mattress filler, which I thought was kind of funny, (laughs) a shipping clerk, you know, just like a bunch of random odd shit, but he never lasted too long at any of them. He also regularly checked in with his parole officer, and in early 1957, Harvey earned his full freedom. Now... If they had wanted to, Colorado authorities could have arrested Harvey at this point on his parole violation. Remember, he and Ophelia took off to Yonkers when he was on parole for those initial burglary charges in Colorado. That's right. But they didn't. And in January of 1957, Harvey was a free man. So he decides to go to Los Angeles, California. He begins what is essentially the second chapter of his life and, well, shit, gets ugly really quick. Harvey the Shitstain goes to California. Once in L.A., Harvey enrolled in the National Technical School and he studied television repair. He had studied radio repair while in prison and he also took up an interest in photography and he actually built a makeshift studio and darkroom in his Melrose Avenue apartment, which is right in the heart of L.A. See, okay, one real quick. Yeah. Again, sex doll. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't have to worry about it. He'd be just an artist giving us art. We could all, you know, right. use the art. Art's nice in life. Right. And then he'd just have a sex doll and everything would be fine. <laughs> well, it is said that his interest in photography went as far back as high school. So once in L.A., Harvey starts visiting these seedy camera clubs. At least that's how they were described. 
At these clubs, a lot of amateur and sleazy non-amateur photographers would solicit aspiring models and act actresses to pose for them. Oh, boy. So I, I never See, heard okay. of these things, right? Real, uh, real quick. Sex doll. No, just robot sex doll. Okay. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not trying to be gross here. I think this would save a lot of society's problems. It's like, and people shouldn't feel bad about having them. If, you're, mm. if you can't get married you're turning not get a girlfriend. this into a commercial for sex dolls uh, well you know sometimes it's a serial killer documentary i'm trying to prevent future <laughs> dipshits like this is something you know okay sorry. my bad now of, Just saying. of course this type of club could attract some less than ethical people and women had to be careful so if they this, had a sex doll at home, they would have got that shit out of there. Then they would have been like, let's protect the women and children. Instead of like, I'm a fucking psycho. I need to touch my penis. Sorry. At, at this time, it was also common for models to put ads in the newspaper offering their modeling services. And photographers would place ads as well. The clubs themselves were pretty seedy, of course. So Harvey fit right in. And it was at one of these clubs that he met his first murder victim. 19-year-old hmm. Judith Ann Van Horn Dole. She went by Judy, so we'll refer to her by that name from here forward. So Harvey met Judy August 1st, 1957. Now, earlier I had mentioned the conflicting information in this case, and this is one of those conflicts. I read like four different sources that had different explanations as to how he met Judy. One said he met her at one of these seedy clubs where he was posing as a photographer. I read another source that said he met her through her modeling agency. I read another one that said Harvey had put out an ad needing modeling services and Judy answered it. And yet another source that said he met Judy when he couldn't get one of her roommates to pose for him. Hmm. So, so it's all four of the possible exactly, ways that he could have ever met her. Exactly. So I guess in any of the possible ways, <laughs> I, I guess he may have gone over to the apartment. Something happened that, where the roommate couldn't pose, but he saw Judy's picture and the roommate gave him her info. Okay. Well, that okay. demonstrates that world right there. Right. Those are all the ways that they right. could have hooked up and, and that's how I'm sure this happened. You know, yeah. These poor women have probably dealt with a ton of pieces of shit. Exactly. Through that pipeline. So there are four or five different ways that he may have met Judy. But one thing we do know for certain is that they met on August 1st, 1957. And we know that he introduced himself to her as Johnny Glenn. Harvey told Judy that he worked as a freelance photographer for a true crime detective magazine, and he wanted her to model for him for $20. So as a side note, I don't know if you guys uh, are aware, but these old true crime magazines and comics featured a lot of depictions of women being bound and gagged. And of course, they're posed in super provocative ways. Right. So this was the type of job that he had described to her and Judy agreed to do it. So let's learn a little bit about Judy. She was born June 23rd, 1938 in Pennsylvania. And at the time she met Harvey, Judy was having a bit of a rough time. She's going through a divorce from her husband, Robert Dull, a press man uh, who worked at the LA Times. Robert and Judy also had a little girl named Suzanne and she was just over a year old. Robert knew that his wife did modeling and really he didn't mind that. But Robert had a hard time when Judy uh, evidently started posing nude or was doing video nude. Hmm. So it's not clear whether or not she actually did this or even if she had plans to do this. But this is what was discussed in court. 
Robert stated that his issue caused some tension, and he told Judy that if she wanted to pose nude, that she'd have to find somewhere else to live. All right, then. So, the two separated, and Robert stated he didn't want his daughter to, quote, be raised by strippers. Hmm. According to investigative records, Robert decided that he was going to take Judy to court, and he had plans to fight for full custody of Suzanne. Robert's goal was to prove that because of her modeling career, Judy was not a fit mother due to the unstable environment that she would introduce their daughter to. So when Judy takes this job from Harvey, she's likely desperate for for some cash to afford legal representation. Hmm. Once Judy agreed to take the job, Harvey suggested they do the shoot at her apartment. And of course, with a big sigh of relief, Judy agreed. She was probably a bit less anxious because she lived with two roommates anyways and found this idea a bit safer. Yeah, right. So they agreed to have the shoot at Judy's place. And later that day, on the 1st of August, Harvey heads over to Judy's apartment. Upon his arrival, he tells Judy the studio he usually works with had a last-minute cancellation. So he's taking her there to do the shoot. God damn it. Although she's not totally comfortable with the idea, Judy agrees and goes along. That fucking sucks. Before leaving, she tells her two roommates, Betty Carver and Lynn Lickles, that she and Harvey, who was going by Johnny, are heading to a studio instead. Harvey, or Johnny, leaves the roommates his number, and then he and Judy head out. In his cunt mobile. Harvey drives Judy to his apartment and to that makeshift studio that he had already created, and it was ready to go. Nice. At first, Harvey took traditional type modeling photos just to get Judy to relax. He then told Judy that he would now have to tie her up to follow the magazine contract. He told her that she was going to have to look convincingly frightened as if she was about to be sexually assaulted. And Judy said she understood. So he tied her ankles and wrists along with her knees, put a gag in her mouth, and Judy poses for him, really throwing herself into the role, doing whatever Harvey directed her to do. After a bit of time passes and Harvey's taking photos, things begin to shift in his mind. He sees Judy tied up, posing for him. He realizes he's got a woman in his house. They're alone. He's in control of the situation. So he picks the completely bound and gagged Judy up from the rug she had been posing on, and he produces a gun. He pointed the gun at her and began to untie her binds. He told her that he, quote, wouldn't hurt her as long as she did what she was told. He told her he had already gone to prison and he would not go back again. So as long as she did what he wanted, he wouldn't, he wouldn't harm her. Hmm. Judy nodded her head in agreement, so he removed her gag and her bindings and said that he intended to, quote, have fun with her. Fuck you, Harvey. It was at this point that Harvey commits his first rape and technically loses his virginity to Judy at 29 years old. Hmm. Later, Harvey would tell police that the sex was consensual. Oh, boy. Jesus. Well, of course it was. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Gross. So Harvey, Harvey assaults her twice, takes nude pictures of her tied up, and then he would later say he felt a special bond with Judy. Oh, uh, there's nothing said, worse for a woman than having some creepy just, guy be like, I feel very connected to you. It's like, please forget me. The 
research. Please don't even look at me and think of me. I know. Ah. The, the, the research creeped me out so much, so many times in writing this. It's just, ugh. No. So he said after he assaulted her, Judy requested to go to the bathroom, and Harvey reminded her, remember, I have a gun, and I will shoot you if you try anything. Yeah, there's that special bond. Yeah, very So <laughs> he allowed her to get dressed and use the bathroom. When she came out, Harvey began asking her what she was going to tell her roommates. Because at this point, he knew that there had to be people looking for her. He knew that Judy had had a couple appointments after him, that she was a no-call, no-show for. And her roommates had gotten a good look at him and knew the car he drove. So he was getting a little worried, and Judy told him she wouldn't tell anyone anything. She explained that she had a custody hearing. Okay, this really pissed me off when I read this. Mm. She explained she had a custody hearing and that she didn't want any sort of, quote, scandal to dampen her chances of gaining custody of her child. God, history's terrible. Yes, folks. Terrible. Welcome to the 50s. Mm. Because she's victimized and assaulted, that's considered a scandal. Additionally, I think probably this would prove her husband's case, or at least she thought it would, that her profession was an unfit environment for, for her child. Right. So Harvey then turned on the TV, and from about 6.30 p.m. to 10.30 in the evening, he has Judy sit next to him on the couch, and they watch television. Fuck you, Harvey. Now, Harvey said that during this whole time, he's trying to figure out how he can let her go, because he has this special bond. He really likes her. He doesn't really want to kill her, but her roommate's being worried, her missing appointments... And the fact that he noticed she actually had a bit of bruising from the rope around her neck. Just makes logistical sense at yeah. this point. And he was scared right. that if her roommates asked about it, she was going to spill the beans. So he decided that, nope, it's either me or her, and it ain't going to be me. So mm-hmm. Judy's got to die. What an epic loser. He made this decision at 1030 after the evening news. Okay. It was at this time that Harvey tells Judy he's going to take her a long way out in the desert and he's going to have his way with her one more time. And there he's going to give her cab fare and let her go. As if she has a choice. So with a gun pressed into her back and their special bond, Harvey marches Judy out to the car and he ends up driving 100 miles southeast of L.A. to an isolated area in the desert of San Bernardino County near Thousand Palms. Mm. He had tied Judy's wrist behind her back to keep her from trying to escape. There, where's that special bond again? <laughs> Now, along the way, Harvey was deciding how he wanted to get rid of Judy. He didn't really want to shoot her because of ballistic evidence, and it was just too messy for him. He actually thought about strangling her, but then considered that the car was just too small on the inside. So when he finally did pull over into the isolated desert, he decided he was going to take her outside. He told Judy that he wanted to have sex with her one last time, and she suggested that they get in the back seat, but he said no. He grabbed a blanket from the trunk and helped Judy out of the car. They walked for a ways in the desert until Harvey could barely see his car, and then he placed the blanket on the ground and told Judy to sit. He tied her ankles together and then made her get on her stomach. He put his knee on her back, grabbed a five-foot length of rope, tied it around her legs, tugged on the rope so that her legs bent at the knee, and came towards him. He then wrapped that same rope twice around her neck, and using pressure from his knee in her back and her body weight, he strangled Judy to death. He was such a tiny man, this is how he had to do it. Harvey said it took about five to ten minutes uh, of her thrashing and moving to cease. 
After she was dead, he dragged her body about 20 yards, and with his hands and one of her shoes, he dug a very crude, shallow grave into the sand and placed her in it and then (sighs) covered her body. Fuck. Once he was done, he picked up the blanket and ropes, placed them in the trunk of his car, and made his way back home to L.A., So, earlier that day, Judy's roommate, Betty, had gotten calls from several people who had appointments with Judy, saying she had never shown up. Two photographers called, looking for her, as well as a contractor, wondering where Judy was for their dinner date. He actually had a lawyer sitting there that was going to discuss her legal issues with her. Betty then gave the contractor... Johnny Glenn's number, which is Harvey's alias. A.K. Johnny the Cunt. And the contractor calls Betty back, telling her that the number she gave him was for a local auto body shop. There was no Johnny Glenn at that location. That's when Betty and Lynn, Judy's other roommates, started frantically calling all of Judy's friends, family acquaintances, even Robert, her soon-to-be ex-husband. After failing to locate Johnny or Judy, Lynn... Betty and Robert, who had actually come over to assist, decided to contact the West Hollywood station of the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. And Harvey's description is put out as a bolo or a be on the lookout. Mm. On December 29th, Judy's skeletal remains would be found in the desert. She was discovered right outside a thousand palms by someone walking their dog. Police arrived on the scene and they searched within a 120 feet radius of that area and they came across the rest of Judy's scattered remains. The bones were then sent to a pathologist where no specific cause of death could be determined as there were no gunshots, no knife marks, no fractures to the skull, no signs of a physical attack, but the police still ruled it homicide because, quote, she didn't bury herself. Right. Though there were still strands of hair attached to the skull, they had no other way to identify Judy. She didn't have any ID or anything on her, and this was the 50s, so DNA was decades away. Judy would remain unidentified for quite some time yet. Now, worried that Judy's roommates had reported him and that perhaps the police were out looking for him, Harvey decided to hightail it back to Colorado to mommy. Now, Harvey claims he did experience guilt, maybe even a little bit of remorse. But after being in Colorado for seven months and not having any sign of law enforcement on his tail, he felt confident enough to return back to Los Angeles. Shit. During his trip, he was actually making a better abduction plan so as not to get caught next time. Like a cunt. He was worried that maybe the cops had alerted the models and actresses in the area and provided a description of him. If only. So he needed a different way to lure women. He was reading the newspaper one day and saw an advertisement for the Patty Sullivan Lonely Hearts Club. So he decided to apply... And this is where he would meet his second victim, 24-year-old Shirley Ann Loy Bridgeford. Shirley was born April 20th, 1933 in Kansas. She was a factory worker. She was divorced and she lived in Sun Valley, California. She lived with her two little boys, Ricky and Billy, and her mother, Alice Joliffe. Shirley had joined the Lonely Hearts Club because she was divorced, and remember, this is the 50s, and single mothers weren't exactly celebrated. So Shirley was looking for some partnership. On March 9th, 1958, I read sources that said it was March 7th, so I don't know if it was the 7th or the 9th, but one of those days, she was contacted by Harvey, 
who now called himself George Williams. He said he was a plumber, and he picked Shirley up at her home, and when he did, she actually introduced him to her mom, Alice, her two little boys, along with her two sisters, Ruth and Mary, and Ruth's husband, Hubert. Shirley had purposely arranged this large group to be in attendance because she didn't know who this guy was. It was a complete blind date, and she wanted to make sure that she had all her family with her to back her up just in case. Harvey, or George, seemed kind of reserved to her family, but Alice thought that this was just what her daughter needed. She thought the last thing her daughter needed was a pushy man, so she didn't mind his quiet, reserved nature. Ruth and Hubert, however, were just trying not to laugh at his big, goofy ears. Hmm. So Shirley and George left the house, and the original plan was to go square dancing. But on the drive there, Harvey said that he had a headache, and he asked Shirley if she just wanted to go on a drive on the coast and maybe get something to eat instead. So Shirley agreed. The two went southbound driving along the coast, and they ended up eating at a cafe in Oceanside. Now, again, this is according to Harvey because we don't have Shirley's version of events. Right, of course. Afterwards, according to Harvey, the two of them made out a bit in the parking lot in the car. But then Shirley was like, oh, you know, it's getting late. I should probably head back. So Harvey started the drive back home. Only Harvey drove east instead of south where he needed to go. Shirley didn't seem to notice. Now, if we're to believe Harvey, he said that he was trying to so desperately to think of ways to let Shirley live, supposedly because of her sons. Here we go again. And he thought that she was a nice girl who didn't take off her clothes for money, but he had her scent on him and he just had to have her. Fuck you, Harvey. And he knew afterwards he was going to have to kill her. Hmm. At least this is what Harvey told the police. So... Harvey drove to this desolate mountain highway, and then he pulled over. Now, according to Harvey, they made out some more. But when he pushed for sex, Shirley declined. She said no, she really had to get back home, and that's when Harvey produced the gun. He told Shirley to get the back seat. He told her to undress, and there he assaulted her several times. When he was done, he told her to get dressed. He tied her hands behind her back, and just like with Judy... He told her he was going to drive her to someplace desolate and drop her off. He ended up driving to Anza Borrego Desert State Park and retrieved his rope and blanket from the trunk. He forced Shirley out of the car and they walked about two miles into the desert. That's when Harvey laid down the blanket and he told Shirley that he wanted to take some pictures of her, even though she wasn't a model. He wanted some pictures for his collection, so he told her that he was going to tie her up and gag her and then take pictures and she didn't put up a fight or say anything so she just sat quietly as he tied her up but that's when harvey realized why am i rushing this i have all night with shirley i'm in the middle of the desert there's no one to interrupt us so he told her that they were going to wait until sunrise where he can get the best natural lighting I read another source that said he waited until sunrise because the flashbulb had broken on his flash attachment. But we do know that he made Shirley sit there in the cold desert, tied up, all night until sunrise. Dick. And during this time, Harvey just spilled his guts to Shirley. He told her everything. This, this is, is this is him this telling is it. Him telling it. Yeah. This is according to him. He told his deepest, darkest secrets and desires. Because to Harvey, he figured it didn't really matter what he told her because she's going to die anyway. What a cunt. And that she was his for the rest of her life. Fuck you, Harvey. So when the sun finally came up, 
He shot off about a half a roll of pictures before he made her lie down face down on her stomach, tied the five-foot length of rope around her ankles, around her neck, and just like he had done with Judy, he strangled Shirley to death. He then dragged her body a short ways away and put it under a cactus because he thought, quote, it should be under something. Fucking weirdo. He then tore off the flat buttons on her dress, convinced that they would contain his fingerprints, and he also took her underwear. They always do. I did read other sources that claim he took photos of Shirley's body and posed it after she was dead as well, and then left her there unburied under a cactus. So I'm not sure which is true or what, but on the way home, he tossed her buttons and purse piece by piece out the car window as he drove. Would it be inappropriate to make a joke about litter here? It would be. All right. Sorry. When Shirley didn't return home that night, her mom, of course, got immediately worried and called the police because it was not like Shirley to spend the night with some strange guy that she just met. Shirley wouldn't want her boys to worry about her. When the police checked the Lonely Hearts files, they discovered the description of George Williams did not match the George Williams that came and picked up Shirley. Her family didn't have an accurate description of George, though. Alice didn't even really remember what he looked like. And all Ruth and her husband could remember were the big ears and the large, thick glasses. This led detectives to wonder about the suspect in Judy Dole's disappearance. He had big ears and glasses. They tried tracking down leads to find George, this George Williams guy, but the address he had given the Lonely Hearts Club was non-existent. Uh, it was a non-existent address in Pasadena, so that kind of went nowhere. Shirley's disappearance did make some minor media rounds, and the media dubbed the suspect the Lonely Hearts Killer. And much later on, when Harvey's murders were all connected... That's when it would change to the Glamour Girl Slayer. No, he does not get the Slayer. He's a fucking Harvey the Cunt. Harvey the Limp Shitstain. Exactly, Barfield. No more cool names for dipshits ever again. No more. So, just as he had with Judy, Harvey claims he did experience some remorse and guilt after Shirley's murder. But by April Fool's Day, when it looked like he was in the clear, Harvey just went on living his life. He was getting money sent to him every month from mommy because, remember, he couldn't find work. You need some money? Yes, I do. You need me to get the crust off your sandwiches? Yes, please. Good, good boy. Probably because at this time... He was uh, busy out being a deviant cunt. Yeah, he's too busy being a fucking creepy stalker killer guy. Can't get in the way of that shit. So (laughs) he then decides to build his own darkroom because he knew the photos that he wanted to develop couldn't be taken to the local drugstore. No. no one, he, he just knew he had to do it himself. Mm-hmm. So he kept photos of Shirley and Judy along with Shirley's underwear and Judy's shoe in a locked toolbox in his closet. Her shoe? Her shoe. That's the shoe that he used to dig the grave. So many of these serial killers They're fucking keep weird. these weird things afterwards. It's almost always underwear, though. I know. It's almost always it's underwear. so sick. On July 23rd, 1958, Harvey met his third victim. Seven months had passed between Judy and Shirley, but only four months had passed between Shirley and his fourth victim. The cooling off period was much shorter now. Harvey's needs were growing, as was his thought process on how he was going to lure more victims. Obviously, he couldn't use the Lonely Hearts ruse again so soon, but it had been well over a year since he lured a model. He decided to look in the paper and look for models who'd placed ads looking for work, and that's when he came across 24-year-old Ruth Rita Rose Mercado's ad. Rose had just moved to L.A. from New York, where she had lived with her mother, Francesca Patricia Mercado, and her little brother, Michael. 
Once Rose was in L.A., she worked as both a model and a stripper under the pseudonym Angela Rojas. Rose originally hailed from Plattsburgh, New York, and she actually served in the Women's Air Force in the Korean War, or, well, it was the police action, technically. I found that kind of fascinating. She had received an honorable discharge, and when she re-entered civilian life, she decided that she wanted to be an actress. So she headed out west to try and make it big uh, with that reality. But as we know, Hollywood is cruel and challenging on all levels. It's a hummingbird feeder for narcissists, yes. Much like Washington, D.C. Sorry. So even though Rose was very beautiful, according to Hollywood, she was considered plain. Rose found it very difficult to break into the industry, so she got an apartment, and she knew that she had to get a job immediately, but she wanted something at least somewhat related to the industry, and that's when she decided to be a model. She put ads out in the paper offering her modeling services, and she did say that she would pose nude for the right price. So this led to her dancing in strip clubs on Wilshire Boulevard. It was here she adopted the moniker Angela Rojas. On July 22nd, shortly after she had placed an ad advertising her modeling services, Rose was contacted by Harvey, the cunt. who was now calling himself Frank Wilson. The cunt. He said that he was a magazine photographer and was interested in her services. They made arrangements for Frank to meet Angela, because remember, that's her moniker, and they met at her house. When Harvey arrived at the apartment, she was slow to answer, and when she did answer, she didn't really smile. She seemed kind of reserved and kind of not happy. She told Harvey that she had to cancel, that she wasn't feeling well, and that she was sorry that she didn't call him beforehand, but she didn't have his number. Fuck you in advance, Harvey. Harvey just played it off like he's like, okay, it's all right, it's fine, that's totally cool, I'll just take a rain check, Uh, here's my number. So he walks back to his car, but on the inside, Harvey is infuriated. Mm. He was pissed that she thought his money wasn't good enough. Fuck you, Harvey. He doesn't have any respect for women in general, but particularly models and women who pose nude. So... Dipshit time. He's fuming all the way back to his car, and he's already formulating his revenge. So, the next evening, he drives to Rose's apartment, but she's not there. So, he kills about an hour or so at one of the local bars, and then he drives back to her apartment, and he can't find parking. He has to park quite a few blocks away because I guess even in the 50s, people couldn't find parking in L.A. (laughs) So he has his gun in his pocket. He had to leave the camera in the car because it just kind of looked too suspicious for the several blocks he was going to have to walk. On the walk up to her apartment, he's thinking, if she has someone over, I'm just going to chalk this up like, oh, it's just Frank trying to cash in on that rain check. And then he'll just scrub the whole thing. So he walks up to the apartment, he knocks, and Rose answers. She's alone. So he tells her, hey, it's Frank. I'm here to cash in on that rain check. And she's actually visibly surprised to see him. I bet. Okay, she's visibly surprised, but when he says, hey, I'm here to cash in on that rain check, she lets him in. So Rose lets him into the apartment, and when he walks into the apartment, Rose's small dog starts yapping at him. Good dog. And he asks her if she can go put him away, so she scoops up her dog. Oh, listen to the dog. And locks him in the bathroom. When she gets back, Harvey has the gun pointed in her face. He orders her to her bedroom. He ties her wrists and ankles, lays her face down on the bed, and he backed out of the room again with the gun and told her not to move. He also actually had stuffed a handkerchief as a gag in her mouth, and then he quickly surveyed Rose's apartment. 
Well, he was actually scouting for escape routes. He was pretty paranoid, even though he thought he had everything under control. He was just scared that maybe there would be unexpected visitors or maybe a boyfriend or someone that would show up unexpectedly. So he wanted to clear her apartment and then find an escape route. So he sees this window in the kitchen and decides that's his out if shit goes sideways. So he heads back to Rose's bedroom and tells her he's going to have sex with her and reminds her that he still has the gun and he will shoot her. He then unties her and she doesn't offer any resistance out of fear of death. He orders her to undress, which she did. And when he's satisfied that she's not going to try any shenanigans, Harvey himself undresses. And over the next two hours, he repeatedly assaults Rose in her apartment. He told the police that he assaulted her for he assaulted her about four or five times. And he knew that when he was done, he was going to have to kill her. Fuck you, Harvey. He later told police, quote, I didn't want to kill her. She was the one I really liked. This dude's deluded mental gymnastics are unfucking real. This guy. Yeah. So after assaulting her, Harvey realized he didn't have any pictures of Rose for his collection. So that's when Harvey has to decide if he's going to risk walking the several blocks to his car to get his camera thus running the risk of Rose escaping or something else going wrong? Or does he run the risk of walking her to his car, the several blocks, and then taking her out into the desert? Ultimately, Harvey decided on taking Rose out to the desert. Mm. He figured there was just less chance of interruption. And so again, with the gun pointed at her, he forced Rose to get dressed. He tied her hands behind her back and then draped a jacket over her shoulders to kind of like hide the fact that her hands were tied and they walked the few blocks to Harvey's car it was midnight so there were very few people out on the street anyways he later told police that he told Rose he wanted to take her on a picnic and that she was actually excited to go and even offered to bring some brandy along for it. I don't think so this is I would bet against that this is what this guy is telling the police I don't know if he's trying to convince himself that these women actually liked him or what, but sounds like it. As he had done with Judy and Shirley before, Harley drove Rose out to the desert, and all that day Thursday, he repeatedly assaults Rose as he drives around the desert. He also takes photos of her bound and gagged. He would untie her to assault her and then do it all again. He knew that she wasn't going to go anywhere. They were in the middle of the desert. As night crept in, Harvey claims that he was struggling more and more with killing Rose, but he knew it had to be done. So he drove Rose yet to another location in the desert, and this would ultimately be about 30 miles away from where Shirley's body was. He told Rose he wanted to snap some last photos of her this time with the flash attachment. He laid out the blanket, ordered her to undress, we know where this is going, tied her hands behind her back along with her thighs and ankles and gagged her. He took his photos and then he got out the all too familiar five foot length of rope, wrapped it around Rose's ankles and neck and then strangled his third victim. He stripped Rose's body of her underwear and haphazardly covered the body with some brush and then just left her there. He then took $10 from her purse and then discarded her things piece by piece, just as he had done with Shirley on the drive back home. After she hadn't been home in several days, Rose's landlord finally let herself into the apartment and she was stunned to find Rose's little dog and two parakeets on the brink of death because they'd been without food or water for days. But 
Okay, get this. The landlord, instead of contacting authorities, she wrote a fucking letter to Francisca, Rose's mother in New York. What? She wrote a letter. Oh, you ass. That would have taken some time to get there. And then when Rose's mother receives the letter, she's like, oh my God. Call the and cops, she alerts, you right. She alerts the local uh, authorities in New York who then notify the LAPD. Mm. So mm. Uh, it was so frustrating. Dumb. So a few days, a few days after Rose's murder, Harvey did find work. He worked as a repairman at a Bruce a place called Bruce Radio, and he had this job when his crime spree would finally come to an end. So good for him. Between Rose's murder and the time that he would be caught, Harvey was actually deteriorating. Uh, his mental health was just sliding, and it was sliding fast. It was already great before. Right. He became more and more obsessed with dominating women, overpowering them. It was all he thought about. He neglected his hygiene and turned his somewhat clean-cut, nerdy, insane look into the smelly, disheveled, wild-eyed, psychotic look. Ah, the Ted Kaczynski look. That's not as good a look. While looking for more victims, Harvey found a place called the Diane Studio in Hollywood. And this studio offered hourly rates for models and posing. So the photographer could come in there, search for a model, and Diane of Diane's studio would be like, here you go, and then set it all up. So Harvey, posing as a photographer, called up this agency this time, telling him his name was Frank Johnson. He picks the most common named yeah. people he could find John to Doe. make it difficult to track. John Smith. Right. Diane herself even posed for Harvey a few times, but eventually his smell and disheveled appearance just sort of started putting her off. So when Harvey showed up a little after 8 o'clock on October 27, 1958, she declined to pose for him. However, she felt bad for putting out a paying customer. She was like, all right, this guy is kind of creepy and he kind of smells and he's dirty, but he's a paying customer and no. I kind of feel bad. So Diane says, okay, tell you what, I do have a model in mind that I could get on short notice, but it's going to cost you extra. Hmm. Harvey, of course, is super excited about this. And so the model Diane knew was 28 year old Lorraine Vigil. She was an aspiring model and had entered modeling late in life. She had just moved to Hollywood. She was 10 years out of high school and was working as a secretary in L.A. She decided she wanted to give modeling a try, so she, she applied to Diane's studio and was signed on. Now, Lorraine had actually been on the registry for a few days without a job when Diane called her up around 9 p.m. and asked if she wanted a job, which, of course, she did. Diane told Lorraine that Frank would be by later to pick her up at her apartment and they'd come on over to the studio to do a photo shoot. Diane did warn Lorraine, though, that this Frank guy was not a professional photographer, so just be careful. <sighs> Frank came by to pick up Lorraine, and when he arrived, he was kind of in a disheveled state. He had his hair, like, clumsily parted, and he wore a suit that was all rumpled. He kind of looked like he slept in his clothes. He, of course, smelled really bad. And Sounds with like my life. Sorry. <laughs> just saying, I mean, it's hitting close to home for me. I don't kill people. I do stink like this, and I look a little disheveled. You do not. I do. He, of course, smelled really bad. And with Diane's warning fresh in her mind, Lorraine asked for some ID. Well, he didn't have any. So she stated that she needed the cash up front, which he also didn't have. He only had $10 and it was supposed to be 15 or 20 or something. 
But she took the money because she didn't want to blow this first ever job. She tells this old couple that she's renting a room from that she's going to go out to model with this guy, Frank. And her landlords, by the way, are very crotchety, old, stereotypical old people. <laughs> they, thought, they thought Lorraine was dirty for trying to model, so they, yeah. didn't, they didn't even give it a second thought. Quit being a hoe! I, right. Lorraine and Harvey get in Harvey's car, and Lorraine's doing her best to ignore his terrible smell, trying to get a conversation going. She reminds Frank that they're going to Diane's to do the studio, but that's when Harvey informs her that plans have changed, and they're actually going to go to Anaheim, where his studio is. Of course, at this point, alarm bells are going off, but again, she's not wanting to screw anything up, so she just sits quietly. Harvey is sensing her growing alarm, so he decides to keep the conversation light and casual. As he drives, he tells her, you're so perfect for this job that I have. He's just trying to light things up, which seemed to be working. Lorraine tells him that she's super excited. This is actually her very first job. She's never modeled before. She's never done anything like this. He's her first photographer. Of course, this excites Harvey, he later told the police. That to him, it was like having a virgin. Fuck off, Harvey. Now at this point, right, this is fucking weird. So at this point, not only is Harvey's mental health rapidly deteriorating. From already shitty. He's also very confident. Yeah, that's a fucking terrible combination. God damn. He's gotten away with three cold-blooded murders and no one is the wiser on him. So he's beyond confident at this point. Mm -hmm. I mean, seriously, they didn't even have any any of the bodies. They were just three disappearances at this point. So... As soon as they get onto the Santa Ana freeway, Harvey starts changing. He starts driving erratically. He starts speeding, which Lorraine, of course, notices, and she tries to kind of voice her concerns. He just ignores her. He just stares straight ahead, doesn't answer her. His whole demeanor has just completely changed, and Lorraine starts getting really frightened. So when they enter Orange County, Harvey's driving Erratically, He's just acting really fucking weird. He suddenly pulls off the freeway. Literally, this guy, like, darts across. They said he darts across four lanes to pull off. He pulls off onto an exit. Uh, It's a semi-desolate road, but not totally desolate. So there's some cars driving by. He tells Lorraine he's pulling over because he has a flat tire. (laughs) <laughs> Lorraine's thinking. From, from driving four uh, over, yeah. Right. She's yeah. like, wait a minute, a, a flat tire? That doesn't follow what you just did, sir. No. She's like, I would have heard that and felt that. And she was about to open her mouth to say that when all of a sudden Harvey had the gun in her face. Hmm. He told Lorraine that he was an ex-con and he wasn't afraid of the gas chamber. And she asked, well, what do you want? When he said sex... I think this confirmed Lorraine's worst fear. Terrifying. He told her that he needed to tie her up, and so Lorraine half-turned so Harvey could tie her wrist behind her back. Although he's fumbling, he manages to get a loop with a rope around her right wrist when Lorraine, this reminded me of his first victim. And the first victim, uh, of course, didn't make it. But this Lorraine's explanation, it's almost like they were their brains were on the same wavelength. Mm. So she's thinking like, oh, my God, how am I going to get out of this? And then she thinks, wait a minute, he's using both his hands to tie my hands nice. right now. So that means he's not holding that goddamn gun. Yeah. So when that thought crosses her mind, she instinctively turns away from Harvey, uh, kind of like jerks away. 
This pisses him off. He tells her he's losing his patience with her. And as he goes for the gun and he brings it up to face her, Lorraine grabs onto the gun and holds onto it for dear life. Mm. Lorraine said she had no idea how guns worked. She had never seen a gun or handled a gun. Mm. She actually just grabbed onto this gun and it both surprised and enraged Harvey. He's never had a victim fight back before. Things aren't going according to his plan, so he's trying to get her to release the gun. He even tries yanking on the rope in his free hand. And remember, he has that loop around her wrist. But Lorraine isn't budging. So as they're struggling, Harvey's muttering curse words, getting frustrated. Lorraine is crying and like holding the gun for dear life. And that's when suddenly the gun goes off, Mm. which must have been super loud. It was inside the car, but the bullet actually tears a hole in Lorraine's skirt, grazes her thigh and lands in the seat. Fuck loud. Now, Lorraine said that it seemed Harvey was just as surprised as she was. He was wide eyed and kept saying, I shot you. I shot you like he couldn't believe it. It wasn't his plan. Lorraine took this brief moment of him being startled to yank free of his grasp while opening the passenger side door and using her legs to propel herself from the car. Mm. So she stumbles out of the car. She skins her palms and her knees. She gets up to her feet and is about to jump to the right to get away from the car. But Harvey, through the open passenger door, had managed to grab the back of her sweater and yanked her backward before she could run. Shit. This causes her to fall backward violently on the ground and to also cause Harvey to launch out of the car. He tumbled on top of her. Wrestling, they tumbled on the road, just fighting, fighting each other, one trying to gain the power over the other. Lorraine later said that there were dozens of headlights that drove by, but nobody stopped to help her. She said Harvey wasn't very clever, and at one point she managed to bite down really hard on his wrist, and this is what gets him to drop the gun. Lorraine snatches it up, and she said if she knew how to handle a weapon, if she knew how to fire it, she would have shot him right then and there, but she didn't. So now, as Lorraine and Harvey were struggling, it just so happened that a highway patrol officer by the name of Thomas Francis Mulligan drives by. According to Officer Mulligan's report, he said he drove by and saw Lorraine on the ground violently struggling with Harvey on top of her. And as soon as he pulled over and approached, the two immediately got up off the ground and Lorraine starts sprinting towards the officer shouting, he's trying to kill me, he's trying to kill me, here's the gun, I have the gun. She gives the gun to the officer and Mulligan calls in the proper authorities and they took Harvey into custody. They also collected the bullet that had lodged in the car seat when the gun had gone off and they found a large assortment of what can only be described as randomness in Harvey's car. So in the back seat on the floorboard were three paper bags. One had jars with what was believed to be water, green apples and shaving cream. Another had cigarettes, peanut butter, canned applesauce and toilet paper. And they also found, of course, Harvey's camera, film, a light meter, ammunition and several lengths of five foot rope. In the back seat, they found a pillow a portable radio, papers, maps, and a pair of trousers. They book Harvey into the Orange County Jail, where he was spouting a story, of course, to paint himself in the best light possible. But he failed. He said that he wanted to hire a model to photograph and possibly attempt to sexually assault. He said he put food and water in the car, headed over to Diane's studio for the sole purpose and intent of hiring this model. He then reiterated what happened when he went to Lorraine's house. 
He talked about the drive. He said that he tried to tie Lorraine up so she couldn't escape. And when police asked about the food and water, he said that was a precaution in case she did escape and went to the police. And he had to live out of his car for a few days like it was nothing. (laughs) Harvey certainly tried to paint the attempted sexual assault, too, as an unpremeditated thing. But detectives didn't believe Harvey. He's not nearly as smart or smooth as he thinks he is. So they, on a hunch, decide to send out a wide bulletin to the rest of the Orange County Police Department, LAPD, blah, 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 describing Harvey, what they caught him for, and how they think that maybe he's got something more in his past. And that's when investigators who were working Rose's disappearance came across the bulletin. On a hunch, they decided to investigate Harvey further. Fucking good instincts. Now, the only link that Rorain and Rose had were the fact that they were both pinup models. But Harvey's place wasn't too far from these investigators, so they thought, you know what? We got nothing else. We need to follow any lead, no matter how outrageous, at the chance that it might turn into something. We need to follow it. So they decided to search Harvey's apartment, and that's where they found pinup models plastered all over his apartment. Mm some nudes some not and not only did investigators working rose disappearance see this bulletin and start looking at harvey so too did the investigators searching for shirley's disappearance and judy's disappearance and they all showed up in orange county to question harvey now at first he was very cagey when talking about the missing women he had denied everything He denied any involvement, although investigators could tell that Harvey would crack with just the tiniest bit of pressure. They just needed to apply it. Now, it should be noted that at no point in time was Harvey read his Miranda rights. Hmm. Apparently... Please don't tell me that ends up... Well, see, I looked into this, and apparently it would be... And he's free today. (laughs) He's 100,000 years old. It, It would be seven more years before the Supreme Court would rule that that was a constitutional right. It is. Uh, that all suspects and criminals had to be read their Miranda rights. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Hmm. But even if he had been read his Miranda rights, Harvey was still convinced that he could talk his way out of this. Hmm. He thought as long as the police didn't find his little souvenirs in his toolbox that he would be in the clear. I mean, you can't really blame the guy. He's never really been truly punished for his crimes. Right. So he thinks that he can talk his way out. Now, for two days, investigators grilled Harvey, never revealing what they found at his apartment. And this was really starting to get to Harvey. He was starting to crack, and they wanted Harvey to take a polygraph, which, of course, freaked him out. But he thought, crap, if I say no, uh, that I don't want to take it, that they're going to know, and so... He had to. He agrees, and, of course, he failed when he was shown the picture of Rose. The polygraph examiner who was administering the test said, quote, the polygraph needle just about hit the ceiling. (laughs) And that is when Harvey then confessed to the murders of Judy, Shirley, and Rose. Good. Harvey said, you guys must have found my toolbox. Fuck you, dude. I know, right? He told investigators how he had assaulted, bound, gagged, taken photographs of his victims before he had strangled them all to death. He then told them how he just left them out in the desert. When police 
phoned Ophelia in Colorado to let her know what her son had done. <laughs> it's just in a his normal crimes. kind of serial murder. It's the yeah, normal right. kind. He's a good boy. <laughs> we she, love him. She said to have cried, "Quote, not my boy, no. not my boy. Never. He has always been such a good, good boy. boy. Oh boy. He never hurt anybody." <laughs> Right, so the police then wanted to get closure for the victim's families, and they also wanted to gather as much evidence as they could against Harvey in case he decided to backpedal and then take this to trial. So they asked Harvey to take them to where he placed the victim's bodies. So right after this marathon confession that he had, authorities allowed Harvey to take them out into the desert of Southern California. He pointed them to where he had left the women, and they drove to Anza State Park, which was about 70 miles southeast of San Diego, and there they discovered what was left of Shirley's remains. Rose's skull was found further down the road, and her body was more preserved, and there was actually a little bit of hair attached to the skull, kind of like with that first victim. Three days later, when Harvey took them to where he left Judy, of course she wasn't there, and this is when her body was finally identified. Hmm. On December 17, 1958, Harvey pled guilty to the murders of Shirley and Rose. He was never actually officially charged on Judy's murder. Harvey's crimes had spanned across a few counties, and so, of course, everyone wanted a piece of this guy to prosecute him. And it ended up that San Diego County won out because they had those two bodies. They were the ones that got to prosecute him, and they tried Harvey for capital murder. Hmm. His attorney, Willard Whittinghill, actually tried to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity on Harvey's behalf, but Harvey would not allow it. Mm. Even after Whittinghill explained to him that it could cost him his life, Harvey said, nope, I'm pleading guilty. Additionally, a number of psychologists who interviewed Harvey and spent time with him concluded that he did know right from wrong and he did not suffer from any type of psychosis. So he was not legally insane Mm -hmm. and Superior Judge John A. Hillwicker sentenced Harvey to death via the gas chamber saying, quote, some crimes are so revolting there is only the death penalty. Hmm. Yeah. For his last meal, he was delivered the night before he was executed. Harvey had a shrimp cocktail, a T-bone steak cooked rare, French fries, a banana split, and a beer. You get Arby's and you shut the fuck up. No sauce. What the fuck? Straight fries, no curly fries. I mean, these women women don't get to eat shrimp cocktail anymore. Fucking piece of shit. Um, However, when the meal was delivered, he declined the beer and instead asked for some asparagus and a salad. He also ate another banana split along with a Coke. So What the fuck, dude? <laughs> this guy is fucking ridiculous. That's just weird that we offer that. I that's know. For, that's for people that are like, we have to kill you, which makes us, you know, Really evil, sad. But uh, know, we're yeah. also going to give you treats. It's like putting down a dog. Like, here's some cheeseburgers, little puppy. We, know. we know you were bad, but... That's weird. That's a weird tradition that we have. Not, well, that, not that they should be eating fucking cardboard either. No, but they should. I th- I'd also like some bacon on my banana split. What? I don't know. Yeah. That's why my deathbed meal. Everyone gets Arby's. That's what I think. Well, Harvey Glattman was finally killed on September 18th, 1959. He was pronounced dead at 10:12 a.m. at San Quentin State Prison. He was killed in the gas chamber there, which is known as the green room. Mm. And none of the victim's relatives or Harvey's relatives, including his own mother, Ophelia, showed up to his execution. Maybe he's not a good boy. So he died alone. Good. That's a gruesome thing to go witness. Yep. So there we are. 
That's the end of his that's life. That's the end of that that's his story. ridiculous story. Fucking A. Well, I'm glad he's off the earth. But yeah, I me guess, too. Yeah, fucking A. With his shrimp fucking cocktail and T-bone <laughs> steak cooked rare. Yeah. Good God. I think everybody should just get Arby's. <laughs> if you liked it in life, then you get it. All right, let's finish this dipshit story with a dipshit meter and our yeah. conclusion. Where does Harvey the Cunt stack up with other dipshits? <laughs> All right, for this week's dipshit meter, we're just going to give you a real basic rundown. Okay. Uh, because there's there's tons here, but there, it's pretty low scores all the way through. Mm-hmm. It's a 2.35, which is actually below average in this sick, twisted-ass world. Right, right. I'll quickly, you know, brutality, he wasn't very brutal. Mm-hmm. Uh, his cruelty, uh, he, I mean, he was cruel, but yeah. below average, according, you know, right. compared to all these people. Criminal Mind, although he had a, you know, top 4 or 5% IQ, he was not very smart. He was a dipshit. <laughs> yeah, he was very stupid. He gave him, <laughs> he gave him under a 2, a 1.7. Yeah. Uh, his depravity is not any of those kind of yucky troll guys or anything. No, but he took photos after, potentially took photos after they were dead. Part of the, the challenge and with posing. My, yeah. Well, part of my challenge with uh, uh, giving these, uh, the dipshit meter, the yeah, numbers, all the scores, yeah. is because of the conflicting stories throughout this entire case. Right. There were so many. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to kind of deduce through logic in, in a couple of ways. Uh, take the one that had the most repeats, I guess. Yeah. Um, and just conflicting information. If did he or didn't he, his score would have jumped quite a bit if he posed dead bodies and took pictures of them for sexual pleasure. Right. But we don't know if that's guaranteed. Yeah. The police never released those photos. Uh, if, if that I know of, if he did, and it's going to be really hard to tell if they were dead anyways, cause they're freshly dead and they're not stabbed or shot or anything like that. Yeah. So it's going to be hard anyways. It's, it's a yeah. crazy conversation to have to right. break this down. Right. Yeah. But, uh, right. So criminal mind 1.75 depravity 2.0. Yeah. Right. It's still up there because right. it's hurting people and mm-hmm. yeah. And then the body count, uh, was Three. I think three He total. killed three people, yeah. Four victims, right? Or more. There might have been a lot way of Way more. Way, yeah. way, way more. Because he started, uh, really, there were victims from the age of 14 on. Right. Just no murder victims, but tons yeah. of sexual assault, mm-hmm. robbery, all that crap. Absolutely. His notoriety, also very low. We mm-hmm. gave him a 1.67. Uh, we usually break this down before the trial, after the trial, and mm-hmm. infamy. And again, we're, we're going from zero to five. Right. right? You guys figure that out, well, you know. Well, before the trial, nobody knew. These these individuals just went missing. They right. were disappearances. We're kind of a big area, too, right? It was a giant area in yeah. Southern California, yeah. even in the 50s. Additionally, these women were considered, I don't want to call them throwaway individuals because they weren't per se. But they were just a step up from sex right. workers, which were considered, and oftentimes today still considered yeah. throwaway individuals. A lower and it's priority. So sad. It is. But because of that, very little media. Um, there was very little media attention, and the public really didn't know about it. Right, and that's what just these these weirdos. He was justifying yeah. hurting these women because they were one step away from what he was. You know, he yeah. could just throw away. Right. Terrible brains. Uh, we also went after the trial. Got, it got a lot more famous. Mm-hmm. You get a 3.0 for that. Yeah. Uh, it went around the country and people were... Uh, mainly horrified. because of his photography. Yeah. Uh, this is really the first time people were appalled that these photos were all taken prior to these women being killed. Minutes in most cases. So people were appalled by this. Um, you know, and, and the pictures were leaked at times, you know, that you, you could find them. They're really on the internet now. You can find right. a oh, bunch of shit. But you can find them out there. I know. Yeah. 
not interested. Right. Uh, well, overall, the infamy was very low. Mm-hmm. I've, I heard about this guy only because I worked at Time Suck, and yeah. all the serial killers yeah. are known in Time Suck land, and we we work on that stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Or we did. I don't mm-hmm. anymore. But, uh, <laughs> you know, he's still not well known at all. Mm-mm. No, he's really not. I mean, we shouldn't remember these people no. other than we should study their brains and, and their behaviors to yeah. learn more about it and to help protect the potential de- victims. The deviant weasel. Yeah. So, all right. Well, the deviant weasel indeed. <laughs> I, you know, I feel bad. I will say I've, all the bullying stuff that happens, all those yeah. names, you don't want to, I'd never want to jump on somebody because of looks and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's always, and you always think like, well, this is a psycho mm-hmm. and they're probably going to psycho anyway. Mm-hmm. But what did those things do to that psycho to push him a little further? What was, part, uh, yeah. I mean, it had to be something. It, it had to be, be nothing. Well, you know, he had all of those buttons available. Right. Um, and they all lined up perfectly for him to become a psychotic killer. Yeah. And those buttons were then just pushed right in the perfect order. And it just pushed him into that area. Now, if maybe he was treated better, maybe he would not have escalated into that. Yeah, it's maybe if his mom say. wasn't a fucking nut bar. I know. And it sounds like, you know, his dad tried, but he's a, you know, old school 1950s father. I gave it my best effort. Who likely beat his kid. I was just going to say, that's all I think of from the. Right. It's just a lot of ass whooping. That was parenting back then. Yeah. You know, is is with a board or a belt or a fucking horse whip. You know, they just did that shit. My dad told me some stories. A razor strap. Golf clubs. Yeah. Golf clubs. That's parents seems like parents would just grab the nearest thing so they didn't hurt their hand. Right. It didn't matter if you weren't careful, you'd be beat by the dog. You know. Right. No shit. Oh my god. Fido. <laughs> well, it was the closest thing, and right. it, it caused the damage I was intended. <laughs> the poor dog. Yeah. Fuck. Well. Anyway, that got dark. Yeah, it did. <laughs> <laughs> What a story. So yeah. 2.35, he's one of the lowest that we have on our list. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to look at the list. I'd say he's down at the bottom. Very, yeah. Very bottom. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and fucking true crime is is a sick, twisted ass world that we I walk know. through. I know. And uh, But it is interesting. I mean, at the very least, when you hear about these things, it's like you learn about some of the, the red flags in life. Exactly. Or it's like, yeah, mm. where you can actually watch out for some pretty key behavior. Right. And if you have some social awkwardness, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where you know you're not an evil, twisted yeah. son of a bitch, but you're displaying some of these awkward things, it's like, well, fuck, maybe I'm being perceived in a way that I don't want to be perceived. Maybe I should be more aware of that. Yeah. Well, that could be helpful to you. I don't know. We're really <laughs> just delving know. into the dipshittery of the world and right. seeing what, what happens. We're giving it a fucking grade, I guess. Mm-hmm. But we've, well, we're just trying to find out. When this began, my big question, my burning question that I found when I was doing research into these cases for my own self is I was finding so much, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? So much, um, hyperbole bullshit. It was, it was escalated by the media Oh yeah, yeah. and they would leak stuff and it was, you know, it grew and it was like this huge thing. And then you found out most of that shit was just lies. Yeah. And that's why that's history too. A lot of history right. is that all the research I've done into historical yeah. Napoleon. He was yeah. never actually short. It was the British media just yeah. tearing him down and it stuck. Yeah. yeah. So under these circumstances, that's part of the reason why I wanted to cover these for the dipshit files was to find out how much truth is there. Mm. Now, what I've found is 
it's very difficult to find truth. Yeah. It, it is. You have to dig pretty deep. Uh, and even still, you're going to find it's going to be hard to tell what's what. Because like with this case, I found anywhere from two to five different stories mm-hmm. stating the same thing in very valuable, um, well-sourced research papers mm-hmm. and and books and so you never really know what the truth is yeah a life is complicated yeah and people don't remember you mm-hmm. know a lot of things that they think that they do you know mm-hmm. what color was that car that just drove by a lot yeah. of people get that wrong in a court of law <laughs> right right so it's just well anecdotal. as it is um this was an interesting case to research mm-hmm. uh there was some pretty sick and twisted shit in there i left some of it out because mm-hmm. i didn't want to actually say those words no <laughs> Fair you know, um, but you got the gist of it. Yeah, uh, you really did. Yeah, that was it was a story. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't a good story. It was a story that, that told the whole story. It was dark. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. Yes. Thank you. Thanks to Bodie, our quartermaster and to our other turd triad trusted cunts. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the trusted turd triad. I think. <laughs> turd. Yeah. The trusted turd. The T3. It'll come. It, T3. <laughs> T cubed. <laughs> And we'll go TQ. Uh, but thank you guys so much. That's Don at, in the Facebook world, and mm-hmm. that's Chris in the in the Discord world. We appreciate both of you guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, info at skycast.com is how you guys send us things to let us know about. Yeah. Like, all the things that you would all like us things. to know. What, what to look into next. If you've got mm-hmm. maybe if somebody that you think is right up our alley, uh, let us know there. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, let well, us know how we're doing. If you think we suck, you yeah. know. Let us know how we're doing. We're, send, it, send it in the skycast. We're okay with it. But, you know. We get enough of your mail. Don't don't write in anymore. There's enough of you guys writing in. I can't. I already can't get get back to it. All. I'm just kidding. We're we're looking at it all, and we're very thankful for everyone that's uh, yeah. participating in our world. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're in your circle, and you're in our circle, and mm-hmm. uh, we hope we bring you some joy each time. Even though this is. <laughs> Pretty dark shit. Right. Well, I did want to actually throw out there, too, that every single email is read. It is. Every single one. Whether you've received a response or not, we may not have gotten to that yet, but your email has been received and it's been read. Yeah. And we share. Yeah. We talk to each other. Mm -hmm. We'll read them to each other and Mm -hmm. stuff. So, uh, I mean, (laughs) it's been amazing. Yeah. I never even thought about that when I started doing podcasts that people Mm -hmm. would care to say things. I mean, just the amount of things where... But, you know, it's touching your life in some way. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's even hard to fathom around in my little brain. Right. It's like, you know, we're just having fun or we're trying to yeah. figure out the best way to live our lives or mm-hmm. whatnot. And trying yeah. to learn a bit of shit. Kind of trying to laugh a little. That's what this show is. is let's learn some shit. Yes. But uh, also, you know, mainly dipshit stuff. Yeah. Anyway. So thank you guys for listening. We appreciate you. Yes. Uh, visit us at patreon.com. We definitely appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scatcast there. But thanks so much. We'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye.